Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 236, Claire Chenault and the Flying Tigers. Today, I'm bringing my brother in podcasting, Laszlo Montgomery, onto the show to help me present the heroic deeds of the American volunteer group, the AVG, immortalized in American culture as the Flying Tigers. Laszlo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ray. What a great honor to be on the History of World War II podcast. I'm such a minor player with such a niche topic in the history podcast space. Thanks for inviting me on your top-rated uh, top show, oh, one I... of my favorite podcasts. I'd say my favorite history podcast. Oh, it's, 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 for me, it's in my top three. But anyway, I, I appreciate that <laughs> very much. And, of course, I love your show. So um, uh, I'm glad your people were able to hash things out with my people so we could get you on the show. Yeah, here we are. That's right. So for all of my listeners who haven't heard of Laszlo Montgomery's China History Podcast, I highly recommend it. Uh, I fell in love with it when I first started listening to it because, like I said then, it was like a, a window into a whole other world, the world of Chinese history, which intimidates the heck out of me, all those names and places and things like that. But you, Laszlo, you make it sound all so easy. It's China history, Chinese history for anyone who has an interest but doesn't want to go through reading a Chinese history book. Laszlo's Chinese history podcast can be found anywhere you find mine. So, Laszlo, you've covered this subject before, which is why I brought you on, in your CHP episodes 151 and 152 back in early 2015. And since I'm at the Pearl Harbor in the timeline, I wanted your help in covering, for a time, America's sole offensive action against the Japanese Empire in the early stages of the war. But why don't we start with a little backstory? Japan's early aggression and the moments that led up to the formation of the American Volunteer Group. Okay, Ray. Well, the AVG, American Volunteer Group, they were they were active in China only from December 41 to July 42. So the Flying Tigers, as far as the heroics that they were immortalized for, that was only an eight-month saga involving just a few hundred men and women. Japan, they were really on a roll since the Treaty of Shimonoseki, 1895, Sino-Japanese War, first one. And it pulled back the curtain on China's big secret, military-wise, that is. They had a glass jaw. And then, so after Japan defeated Russia, the Russo-Japanese War, and then in 1931... Japan began their military takeover of Manchuria. 1932, Manchukuo was established. And then 
July 7th, 1937. Uh, you mentioned this before in uh, your episode, the Marco Polo Bridge incident up in Beijing that launched the Second Sino-Japanese War. And then since then, Japan was rattling their sabers like crazy. So Chiang Kai-shek decided to fight back. And his surprise attack on Japanese naval vessels that were docked in Shanghai, most notably the Izumo, you also mentioned, Mm -hmm. that kicked off the Battle of Shanghai, August 1937, followed by three brutal months of destruction. Right. And of course, that uh, covers the uh, the infamous rape of Nanjing in December of that year. Just absolutely horrific. We don't need to revisit that. But again, like you said, the Japanese were just running wild. That was what was happening at this moment. So rape of Nanjing, that came right on the heels of the Battle of Shanghai. And pretty much starting then from that point forward, Japan just mauled China up and down the Yangtze River. They were trying to establish control over all the cities of China that were critical to their plans. Chinese, they put up a stiff resistance, but in most all the cases, it was a complete mismatch. Right. But that that makes me think, what about China's Air Force then? You know, around 1937, what were they doing? Uh, Non-existent. They had been trying... (laughs) They had been trying to establish one, but um, to create an air force from the ground up, mm-hmm. yeah, it's one of those things that's harder to do than it seems. So Chinese weren't having any luck. Uh, okay, so so as Japan gets closer to December 1941, they, their fateful decision, they're gaining all this experience. Their pilots are gaining all this experience fighting in China. And so by that time, they're going to be at the top of their game. Yeah, Japan was at the top of their game, and they were bombing cities uh, like the Chinese wartime capital of Chongqing, as well as Kunming and other places, just bombing almost at will with no resistance. Right. And of course, because this is 1937 and 1938, Uncle Sam isn't doing anything about it yet. We're just kind of sitting back, watching, hoping for the best. Yeah, we were still neutral, so we couldn't come running to China's rescue in their battle with Japan, or else... We'd be at war with Japan, so we had to be careful at this at this stage, this pre-Pearl Harbor stage, to keep up appearances. And that's where TV Song came in. Now, I call TV Song one of the unsung heroes uh, for the Chinese side. He was the brother to the Song sisters, Ai Ling, Qing Ling, and Mei Ling. So TV Song became the intermediary between his Famous sister, Song Mei Ling, Madam Jiang Kai-shek, and other well-placed people in Washington, D.C. So his diplomacy, his quick thinking, his understanding of the big picture, and most of all, his personal relationships with key people with direct access to the chain of command in the United States, Mm -hmm. that was what led to the formation of the AVG, the American Volunteer Group, and of course, you know, we know them as the Flying Tigers Right. So let's talk about the ABG and what happened after TV Song pulled the right strings in Washington. And to tell this story, I think the best place to start would be with General Claire Chenault, a great, great American hero and a hero from the annals of World War II history. So I'll let you, the proprietor of this fine World War II history (laughs) podcast show, uh, introduce old Leatherface, one of his several nicknames. 
Okay. So, uh, yeah, Claire Lee Chenault, born in Commerce, Texas, uh, about an hour northeast of Dallas. Uh, his family originally came from the Louisiana Bayou, and he has one of those birthdays. We're not really quite sure, but most history books peg it on September 6th, 1893. Uh, let me interject. Three months before Chairman Mao was born over in China, I'll have you know, in the year of the dragon. Oh, okay. Yeah, they uh, seem to have a lot in common. Very determined gentlemen. Yeah. So, so again, Claire, determined to rise above his modest birth, he really pushes himself. Um, he, he's just a really example of just a go-getter. So he is in the ROTC, the Reserve Officers Training Corps at Louisiana State University. He receives his teacher certificate in 1910, and he begins his career as a school teacher in Athens, Louisiana. The year later, uh, he marries Nellie Thompson, and they're going to go on to have eight children together. Uh, but obviously, the teaching wasn't paid enough, so in 1916, Claire went to work for a Goodyear Tire Company in Akron, Ohio, and he's going to come late to the fight in World War One, which is probably why he didn't see any action. But, however, during his time in there, he does learn to fly a Curtis in, excuse me, a Curtis JN-4, or Jenny, as they were called. And pretty much from the end of World War One until the end of his life, he's going to be tied to the Air Force, to flying, and to flight training. He graduated in April of 1990 as a pursuit pilot for, for the 46th Pursuit Squadron, and in 1920, which brings us the National Defense Act, and the Air Force is joined as, as part of the Army, they're going to have 1,500 officers who are going to be selected to seed this new Army Air Force. So Chenault gets a solid gig in 1923, commanding the 19th Pursuit Squadron in Hawaii. Not a bad gig. Then in 1931, he's going to become an instructor at the Pursuit School that was relocated to Maxwell Field in Alabama. And it was here that Chenault developed all of his training techniques and his lectures about how to fight in the air. Boy, that uh, must have been quite a come down to go from Hawaii to Atla uh, to Alabama. <laughs> Nothing against Alabama is a great no, state, but, but oh, gee, no palm yeah, trees there. So exactly. that's what led his path to China. It all started with this this flying team that was created by the Air Force. It was like, you know, the Blue Angels of our day. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a team of three pilots, and they would do all this precision flying and perform all kinds of aerial acrobats. They were known as the three men on a flying trapeze. So <laughs> besides, besides stunt flying in front of audiences and doing all kinds of PR work, they carried out also testing of flight formations and air combat techniques. So along in December 1935, General Mao Chu, he's he was visiting the U.S. from China. He was a close confidant of Jiang, of Jiang Kai-shek, and he ran the flight school in Hangzhou and was their main guy in the, in the nationalist Chinese Air Force. And he was tasked with procuring planes and equipment. So that's what he was doing in the United States when he went to go see the three men. In the the three men on a flying champ trapeze, so he was uh, he was close to the major manufacturer, the Boeing of its day, the Curtis Wright Curtis Wright Company of Buffalo, New York, and uh, at the All American Races held in Miami, December nineteen thirty five, General Mao was present as the guest of Curtis's salesman in Asia, William Pauley. It's another great story, which we could leave for another time. And it was there that Mao Bang Chu saw Claire Chenault 
for the first time as he performed these aerial stunts with the three men. So over drinks, after this was done, Mao made an offer to Chenault and his two partners in this group. And the offer essentially was to come to China and teach flying and combat techniques to the pilots of the budding Chinese Air Force. So uh, now, yeah, and, and the other, and this dovetails nicely with Chenault's plan because he plans on retiring um, from, I guess, the Army Air Force in 1937 anyway. So this is going to work out nicely for him. Now, a big part of the decision, even though this guy's going to live another 21 years, is his health. It's not all that good. He's got chronic bronchitis. I think he smokes like three packs of camels a day. That's clearly not helping. And he was in a lot of planes where the cockpit was open, the exposure, the, the, the cold, that kind of stuff. So, um, but to be honest with you, because of the type of person he was, he never let his health keep him down. He was extremely active. He hunted. He played tennis. He would stay out late carousing with the officers and the guys, played poker, got liquored up on bourbon most nights. He was he was that kind of guy. And as you can imagine, hanging out with his men and being like that, they respected him a lot for this kind of uh, um, camaraderie. Yeah, they sure did. But his health and too many ruffled feathers in the chain of command led Claire Chennault to officially retire from the Army Air Corps on April 30th, 1937, with the permanent rank of captain. So leading up to this, he had kept this dialogue going since December 35 with uh, General Mao and his people regarding their offer. So he was ready for that, and they worked out a two-year consulting deal between Chennault and the CAF, the Chinese Air Force. So the Chinese government, they, as we discussed, they've been trying in vain to establish uh, flight training programs to kick off their air force, but uh, everything was going. It was leading nowhere. So this attempt at bringing Chenault in, that wasn't the first time that they tried hiring uh, help from the outside. Uh, nothing had worked up till now, but now with Chenault there, and he was working directly for Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Song Mei-ling. Wow. Chiang Kai-shek had put his wife, just like uh, Clinton put uh, Hillary in charge of that health care thing. <laughs> yeah, Chiang Kai-shek said, uh, you know, to build his Air Force, who else uh, is more trustworthy than his wife? So uh, she was in charge. So Chenault and uh, Madame Jiang, they met. June 1937, just before a month before the Marco Polo Bridge incident up in Beijing, which uh, kicked off the hostilities. So as Secretary General of China's Aeronautical Commission, Madame Jiang was in charge of building this new Chinese Air Force from the ground up. And she wanted Chenault to study the situation as it, as it was at that moment and offer up to Jiang Kai-shek his best assessment and recommendations. So he was there to also to train Chinese crews and support in the building of airfields and inspect which and how many of these 500 aircraft in the possession of the Chinese Air Force, how many of them were still usable. So that was his first assignment. He carried it out. He came back. You know, he never minced, minced words. Chenault. He always <laughs> told it like it was and, you know, pissed a lot of people off in the process. But he came back. He said, you got 500 plates. Eighteen percent of them are, uh, you know, usable, less than 100. You know, these were Curtis 
Hawk biplanes, you know, from uh, from a long time ago, and Boeing P twenty six monoplanes and Italian made Fiat biplanes. The Chinese would get whatever they could, whatever whoever whatever would be sold to them, they would take. But it wasn't right. uh, much. But it was a start. And Chenault was made head of combat training at a school based in Nanchang in Jiangxi Province. So he was supposed to be there working with General Mao Bangchu, you remember who we met at those, and, 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 who had got the ball rolling at December 35, but uh, Mao wasn't, uh, General Mao wasn't even there. So Chenault took charge. He went out to uh, Nanchang, which, you know, is the capital of Jiangxi province, but it's it's not uh, what you'd call a, a, back in the 1930s. Uh, wasn't a, such a, a developed place uh, for a foreigner anyway. And... Uh, but he uh, he he went in there. He and he had only been in China for six weeks, and there he was in Nanchang. He didn't speak a word of Chinese. wasn't familiar at all with the culture. <laughs> no wonder he smoked three packs of camels a day. Wow! I, I, before we go on, I do have to add this in because I remember this part of the story in one of the books I was reading. So they they tell. Um, uh, they tell Chong that uh, only eighteen percent of the the planes are usable. And he, this man was known to have a temper, and he. But he's politically brilliant. He's not a he's not a military genius, but he's politically brilliant. He goes out on there in this this room. He goes out onto the porch, and he mar- he marches up and down the porch, and he's talking under his breath. And Claire knows that he's upset. Why wouldn't he be? But he doesn't know exactly what's going on. Eventually, um, Madame Chang uh, turns to Claire and says. He just he's really mad right now and he's just threatened to have General Mao executed and he's deciding what to do. So, uh, yeah, it was best that Mao got out of there and got a different assignment. But he was he was obviously, uh, uh, you know, to go from 500 planes to uh, less than 100. He's pissed because, yeah, they're trying to deal with the Chinese. I just I just remember that moment from the book really well. Yeah. Uh, but but anyways, Madam Chang was calm the entire time. And, and let me ask you real quick before we go on. I don't know if their marriage had anything to do with love, but they were obviously both very brilliant people and they were a very effective team. Was this mostly a marriage for convenience or was there truly a, a relationship between these two? Well, uh, Madam Jiang, Song Mei Ling, she, her and her two sisters, her, her one sister, Ai Ling, was married to the uh, uh, Minister of Finance in China, a guy named Winston Kong, who's the richest guy in China. And the other sister, Qing Ling, Song Qing Ling, she was, uh, she was married to Sun Yat-sen. So she was Madam Sun. So that's uh, pretty wow. sacred in China. Uh, yeah, they say the three sisters, uh, Ai Ling, Mei Ling, and Qing Ling, uh, one loved money, one loved power. That was Madam Jiang, was the one who loved power. And then one loved China, and that was Song Qingling, Madam Sun Yat-sen. So, yeah, it was, uh, they were, they, they their father, uh, Charlie Song, was a very wealthy and, uh, a successful guy in, in, in China. And his children, his three daughters, and the son, T.V. Song, uh, mm-hmm. there was quite a, quite a powerful family in China, <laughs> in terms of, you know, economic wealth and power and also in the government. So it was uh, for, for Jiang Kai-shek to marry the, uh, the sister of Madame Sun Yat-sen. Uh, that, was a, that was a pretty big deal. They didn't have any children together. And mm. uh, it, uh, I, I can't say it was a, a marriage made uh, for love, but 
they were sure the biggest power couple in right. nationalist China. That's what I was about to say, the ultimate power couple of China. So uh, so anyway, so when Chenault reports uh, to Chiang Kai-shek about the state of affairs, you know, like you said, he doesn't mince words and he just, boom, puts it out there because that's the kind of person he is. But Chang appreciates this. So he makes Chenault his unofficial commander of the Chinese Air Force, the CFA. Uh, but by the end of 1937... CAF! <laughs> CAF. I'm sorry. I used to work for the CFA Institute. I so apologize for that. CAF. Oh, my God. My, my past is coming back to me now. So, But by the end of 1937, despite all the, sh- uh, the training and the initial attempts to fight back, the Japanese have worn the CAF down to the bone. I mean, it's, it's a one-sided fight. So... Despite the, what resistance the Chinese put up, the Japanese military in late 1937 was simply unstoppable. So Chiang, is that how you say it? Chiang? Chiang. I'm, I'm trying not to butcher his name. <laughs> it's it, okay. You must cringe every time I talk. I don't anyway, so, Chiang. <laughs> so he sent out an SOS internationally, but the only ones who come to his uh, rescue are the Soviets. Uh, they send him like uh, 300 planes and all. They've all been battle-tested in the Spanish Civil War, which my members will know about. And this assistance goes on, obviously, until uh, June of 1941, when Operation Barbarossa comes along. Hitler invades Russia. So once the Soviets are they back out of their commitment, China is once again left standing alone to face the Japanese and their incredible military apparatus. That's why, in October 1940, Chiang Kai-shek and his missus, they told mm-hmm. Chenault... Head to Washington, D.C., go hook up with Madame Jiang's brother, T.V. Song, to discuss right. the procurement of pilots, aircraft, and ground crew. Ah, uh, okay. So, yeah, so after a lot of negotiating and arm twisting behind the scenes in the halls of power uh, in D.C. on December 23, 1940, an order was sent to FDR for approval. The total cost to come to China's aid for all the planes um, from Curtis Wright was $4.5 million. Uh, the planes, the parts, and the equipment are transported to the port of Rangoon. Chiang Kai-shek had asked for 500 planes, but he had to settle for 469. These were 200 P-40s and a few hundred other types of aircraft. But like you were mentioning earlier, thanks to TV Song, access to the right people close to FDR... They bent enough ears so that FDR signs off on the creation of the first American volunteer group, 100 fighters and crew. The second American volunteer group was to follow, was slated to have 100 bombers and crew, and the third AVG would consist of additional fighter aircraft. And for all of this hardware, the Chinese government would be picking up the tab. So, the Chinese Aircraft Manufacturing Company, or CAMCO, was hastily set up as the front in China to handle all the procurement of aircraft parts and crew. So all the paychecks for these pilots came from CAMCO, and they were the the fig leaf that the U.S. Right. used to show they're not involved. So anything the Japanese would point to, the Americans could say, hey, you know, it's not us. It's uh, right. This is all coming from China. We have nothing to do with this. So Chenault's deal with uh, China Aeronautical was finalized in order number 5987 on August 1st, 1941. And it said, number one, the first American volunteer group is constituted on this date. Two, Colonel Chenault will organize this group with American volunteers now arriving in China. 
to participate in the war. Additional personnel required to complete the organization of this group shall be supplied by this commission. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. And as you can imagine, this is probably kept as hush-hush as they probably could. But if I remember correctly, you know, eventually rumors get out and people start talking. But like you said, the Chinese and the Americans can point at this and say, hey, this is not the Americans doing this. So once the planes arrived in Rangoon, Burma, they were then assembled and sent to the AVG base on the Yunnan, China. And Burma, and the Burma border, at is that La Wing? La Wing. La- Okay, so they got the planes. Now they need the pilots. Hence, the recruiting begins. So as word gets out, the pilots are attracted, you know, for their own personal reasons. But most of all, it has to be the high pay relative to the military salary. So the pay was going to be $300 a month for crew chiefs and $600 a month for pilots, which is a heck of a lot more than what the military was paying them. Everyone who volunteered receives travel documents, a ticket to California, $100 for incidentals, passage to Burma, and ultimately to China. They were also handed $500 in cash to cover their eventual return to the United States when they were all done with their job. And if anyone was killed or became disabled, CAMCO would pay six months' salary to their beneficiary. And, of course, not written into the contract. And and again, this is just uh, the Chinese being desperate, but you... you it totally makes sense. There was a promise from Camco that for every Japanese fighter or bomber they shot out of the sky or destroyed on the ground, there would be an additional $500 reward. So again, they're just flashing money at these generally very young men, and there, there's going to be a response to it. Uh, as for the planes they're using, what Chenault got from Curtis Wright were the P-40s with their 1,040 horsepower V-12 Allison engines. Uh, the P-40 flew at 378 miles per hour and had a range of 800 excuse me, 840 miles. So they were armed with two 50 caliber machine guns and four wing-mounted 30 caliber machine guns. Uh, And it would be the P-40 that became the primary workhorse for the AVG. Now, they couldn't fly over 20,000 feet, which was a bit of a limitation, and the plane was heavy due to its armor plating and the thickness of its metal. But later on, as they start to mix it up with the Japanese, the pilots are going to be very thankful for that. Uh, The Japanese aircraft, I think we might have covered this in an earlier episode, were rather thin-skinned and fragile compared to the P-40s, but they were much faster and much more maneuverable. And the other thing as far as when it comes to tactics, so quick and agile were the Japanese fighters, the KI-27s, or NATES as they were referred to, Chenault has guaranteed his pilots that if they go up against them one-on-one in a dogfight, they are going to lose. They will be taken down. Chenault has to come up with a winning flight combat strategy that would confuse and confound the Japanese Air Force time and again. So in the fall of 1941, the story of the Flying Tigers begins to take shape right so yeah at that time japan's three all policy it was in full swing when chenault was in china that was one of the reasons 
the Chinese government needed some assistance so urgently. Japan's three all policy, the, the three policies were to kill all, burn all, loot all. And this was Japan's payback for the deadly Baituan Tachan, the 100 Regiments Offensive. It was launched by Peng Dehuai in late 1940. Mm-hmm. And really took it to the Japanese and messed them up. And this was this was Japan's payback. Two point seven million Chinese will perish in all kinds of terrible ways as a direct and indirect result of this brutal three alls campaign. The San Guang Jiangtze. Now in Japan they called it the Sanko Sakusen. That's why Chenault was in China. Chiang Kai-shek was, was kind of hoping Chenault could put together an effective force to soften the blow of this savage, savage Japanese offensive. So from the Marco Polo Bridge incident, 7-7-1937, all the way through to the end of 1941 and into 1942, Japan was just a force that no one yet could reckon with. They couldn't be beat, and their bombers dropped their payloads again at will with almost no resistance. And Chongqing... The capital was just being mercilessly bombed during the summer of 1941. And well, the AVG wasn't yet prepared to deal with this. Uh, yeah, and there was only one single supply route left to get war supplies to China. And this was the famous 700-mile-long and winding Burma Road. Goods came into the port of Rangoon down in the south, and when they were transported up to the Lashiao, how do you say that? Lashiao. Lashio in the Burma Shan state. And from this Burmese terminus, the cargo made its way through the 3,000 meter high mountains of Kunming. This was the only way. Why? Because Japan had all of the east coast of China bottled up. And now they had their sights on Burma and shutting down this road, which the Japanese military leaders called the Aid to Chiang route. So you can tell how they viewed that. Um, Chenault's shipment of 100 P-40s came to Burma in crates. The wings came in one box and the engine and fuselage came in another. And, as, and they were assembled at their base in Burma. And as you can imagine, the logistical effort to get all these aircraft in place, the parts, the materials, to build airstrips, getting the volunteers transported from their various bases all over the states to the base in Burma. It was a massive organizational and logistical undertaking, just the kind of thing the United States military was good at at the time. Uh, But in Chenault's case, he wasn't a part of the U.S. military. He was a volunteer on the payroll of the Chinese. And so, as is often the case when Chenault was left to his own devices, he did things himself. He was a very go-getter. And like you said earlier, even though he doesn't know the language or the culture, he just throws himself into it. So the first base is at the Kaida Airfield, in Tungu, how do you say that? Gee, Tungu? my Burmese is rusty, but Tungu. Okay. <laughs> We're going to go with that. We're going to go with that. Okay, so, so it's 170, 175 miles north of Rangoon. It was a former British base that they gladly palmed off onto the unsuspecting Americans. And it was a horrible place. There were mosquitoes and other conditions that gave the pilots all kinds of tropical diseases, and it's going to be miserable conditions that they're living under. In time... Most of the men, not just the troublemakers, were rebelling at these conditions. The volunteers were going to find out the hard way that this part of the AVG outfit, um, they didn't have the kind of perks that they were used to in the U.S. military. But when they were all assembled, Chenault began the day-in and day-out routine of lectures and drills and nonstop training in the P-40. 
Chenault has got a solid grasp of Japanese aircraft and their fighting capabilities, so he takes everything he knows and he passes it on to the pilots. He was a masterful trainer and had the experience to distill what he knew, and his men respected him for this because the idea was to keep them all alive. So he hammers at them repeatedly how to take on the mighty Japanese Air Force. And I've got a uh, quote from Chenault that just explains this perfectly. So he says, The way to attack their formations is by getting above them. Dive into the formation at high speed. Pick your target, fire at it, then continue on through, breaking away at a dive until you clear the formation. Once you're well away from the fight, climb back above them and do the same thing again. Above all, never turn with their fighters. The P-40 cannot do it. They'll be right behind you in one turn, maybe two. Don't even think about it. If you do, we'll be picking up your we'll be picking up pieces of you all over the jungle. They will shoot you down, gentlemen. Make no mistake. So when Chenault was whipping this outfit into shape, Japan, December seventh, nineteen forty-one, bombs mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor. And at the time, the AVG only had about eighty pilots and sixty-two combat-ready aircraft. So they were waiting for an onslaught from 682 planes that Japan had earmarked from their arsenal of 1,300 aircraft to fight this Burma campaign. So the AVG wasn't alone, though. They weren't doing everything by themselves up till now and pretty much throughout the war in this part of Asia. Britain was right there, front and center. I mean, they had their interests in in China and Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaya, and were the first ones to clash swords with Japan. So the American volunteers, they began trickling into China around July and August. So the last of them would arrive by the end of November 1941, just before Pearl Harbor. So in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor... It was left to the AVG, the American Volunteer Group, and their Curtis P-40s to join with the RAF and the CAF to fight back at a time when Japan's armies were advancing and seemingly unstoppable. So with war now officially declared, plans to move ahead. You remember the part of the deal that TV Song had worked out? They were going to come out with a first, second, and third AVG They said, Mm -hmm. no need for the second and third anymore. Everything will be, those two were scrapped. And the first AVG simply became known as the AVG. And that was the only uh, American volunteer group. So three days after Pearl Harbor, Japan had steamrolled into Thailand and had taken over. So with Thailand, under Japan's thumb, next door neighbor was Burma. They were in the on-deck circle for... Mm-hmm. takeover. So the first, so the AVG's first mission of the war, okay, it didn't see any combat. It was only a recon flight over an airbase in Thailand that showed, yeah, Japanese were there and gearing up for a fight. Right. But then, on December 20th, 1941, the Japanese Air Force is going to be formally introduced to the AVG. 
And it all started with another routine Kumbing bomb run for the uh, for a group of 10 Japanese KI-21s, or Sallies, as the Allies called them. Now, these uh, these kind of bombings were pretty much routine for the Kumbing residents, and they'd been putting up with it for just over a year. So I guess you just duck, wait for the bomb run to be over, and then come back out and, and count your and take care of your dead. So the air, uh, the air signs would go off, and everyone just ran for cover until the Japanese were finished bombing. Uh, but... And I'm not sure if we covered this earlier, but Chenault had also come up with an early warning system using phones and radios. And uh, so the approaching Japanese bombers are picked up, and one of the three squadrons of the AVG goes up in the air to face them. This was it. This was everything had been building up to this moment. And it was a freezing cold December day, and the Japanese are welcomed by four AVG fighters. Like you said, they don't have a a very uh, big crew. They don't have a lot of planes, so they can't just put all of them up in the air in case something bad happens. So four KI-21s are going to get blown out of the sky, and the other bombers see this, get scared, dump their payloads before they get to their destination, and just head back to their base in Thailand. And when they land and they're debriefed, no one has any idea who these guys were that that were firing on them. The planes had nationalist Chinese markings, but who were they? Were they Chinese? Were they Russians? I mean, who are these guys? And they had shark mouths painted on their nose and fuselage. This had never been seen before. And so they are truly confused and a little bit, you know, thrown off their game. And I just have to mention real quick that the Americans got this idea of painting the shark mouths. Um, they were looking at an Indian newspaper and they saw Australian pilots who had sharks painted on the front of their planes and they thought it was you know, very scary and intimidating. So they copied that. <laughs> well, the Chinese press had a field day with this December 20th battle. They called these pilots the Feihu, the Flying Tigers. The local Chinese, they were ecstatic that someone had come to help defend them against the Japanese. So on that one day, Kunming was spared a day of bombing. The place was already in tatters, but it was a a great morale booster at a time when there wasn't much good news to go around. So a little goes a long way. The Japanese, they'd come back again and again. But for now, they knew... No more free ride. They didn't own the skies anymore. So the reality was that, although the AVG schooled the Japanese, this first episode of air combat, it didn't go too well, actually, in in Chenault's, uh, the way Chenault Mm -hmm. saw it, because the pilots had made many mistakes, and they allowed most of the Japanese bombers to get away. But they gave Japan a black eye, and from this, Japanese found out, rather quickly who these flying tigers were and well what could they say anyway war was on didn't matter anymore (laughs) nobody was trying to keep up appearances right it's all official now yeah so like you were saying this is the first big encounter on december 20th but then orders came to get out of china and to head in a southerly direction to Burma, because that was where the next big battle was going to be fought. Uh, If the Japan shut down the port of Rangoon, then China was finished as far as the hopes of getting any more overland supplies. So this obviously is their top priority now. So the uh, Japanese plan called for Rangoon to be taken as the first step of their ultimate conquest of Burma. So the ABG left China and went to uh, join that fight. Now, they're going to be based in a place that I know I'm going to butcher this name. Mingaladan. <laughs> Mingaladan. Thank you. Thank you. So they're going to be based in Mingaladan, and they're going to share the base with their partner in this fight, the Brewster Buffaloes of the 67th Squadron, 
of the RAF. Not much, if any, cooperation went on at first in Mingaladong. The ABG pilots and crews, with their boozing ways, their whoring, and their other antics, generally just pissed off the more uh, reserved Brits. Uh, and at the beginning, it was really nasty between the Americans and the British, but that's going to change soon because they're both facing a, a common enemy. So, uh, December 23rd, 1941, the Japanese make their first bombing raid on Rangoon. That shook everybody up. But after after the bombers dropped their payloads, they ran into a squadron of AG, AVG pilots, and six Japanese planes were shot down. Two AVG pilots were also downed, and they didn't survive. But then, on Christmas Day, 1941, the Japanese were intent upon bombing Rangoon into submission, pretty much like they had done against Shanghai back in 1937. And this day ended well for the Flying Tigers. In this encounter, the pilots utilized the dive bombing techniques taught by Chenault for the first time. Two ABG P-40s were lost, but their pilots survived. And that was critical for Chenault, who couldn't replace these men as easily as he could replace planes. The head of the squadron radioed in that 15 Japanese bombers had been downed and nine fighters. The RAF bagged seven Japanese aircraft, but at a loss of six pilots and nine aircraft. And it's right about here that the two unwilling partners finally came together and began to share their resources and to get along. That was the only way they were going to survive, much less have a chance at victory. So anyway, as much as the ABG and RAF were acting as an irritant for the Japanese, let, let's not overstate this, everything's pretty much going Japan's way. They're still pretty unstoppable. And while the, the Japanese may be suffering losses in the air, no one can hold back their ground forces. The uh, RAF and ABG fighters were in the air constantly during this phase, finding one skirmish after another. And it's here that uh, Chenault writes a letter to FDR. It says, the American volunteer group, which was authorized by you, is happy to report to the commander-in-chief that in three combats it has shot down 29 Japanese airplanes and has lost only two of its pilots. If furnished with a very small number of aircraft of proper types and models and a few more men immediately, we are confident that in cooperation with the Chinese we can damage and demoralize the Japanese Air Force, that it will cease to be a factor in the China-Burma-Malaya theater of war. Any action must be immediate and must have the full support of the Allied powers. Be assured that the group desires to be of the greatest service to the general cause in this brutal an unprovoked conflict. Yeah, once the Japanese army arrived in Rangoon, all they had to do was take it. March, 19, mm -hmm. March 1942, it was like Saigon, April 75. Anything that could be salvaged for the future war effort was sent north to China or west to India. And what couldn't be saved was destroyed before Japan got their mitts on it. And the whole city was put to the torch to welcome the Japanese army. The Allies, they evacuated Rangoon along with 400,000 other Burmese fleeing to the north. There was so much American Lend-Lease supplies in the port that they couldn't blow it up fast enough. So the Chinese oh. still managed to seize more than 19,000 tons of made-in-USA arms and equipment that were supposed to go help Chiang Kai-shek. Right. And after, and after locking down Rangoon, the Japanese controlled the Pacific Rim from Japan to Australia, which was a part of the plan in the first place. However, the conquest of Burma has to be considered a slugfest compared to the taking of East China. 
In fact, even till the end of the war, the Japanese were scratching their heads. Why was it so hard to take Burma compared to every other campaign? Of course, we'll cover this later in detail. But the way the fight was going in the air, the Japanese thought the number of flying Tiger pilots and aircraft was way more than it actually was. But in, in the end, despite all the heroic effort, the Japanese are going to take Burma. Throughout January of 1942, the Japanese capture all Allied bases in Burma and put everything back that had been blown up before they got there. And from these former Allied bases, they regularly bombed the port and city of Rangoon. The ABG and RAF fighters went up to meet them each time in air-to-air combat. By the middle of February 1942, the military supply channels were able to get badly needed parts to the ABG that allowed them to patch up their aircraft once more. And although Rangoon hasn't fallen yet, the day is coming. By the end of February, though, it was time to bail from these bases just outside of Rangoon. The British flew to the old ABG base at Kaida, and the ABG squadron fighting in Burma moved to Magui? Magway? Yeah, it sounds good to me. Okay. <laughs> Moved to Magway in Burma. So they're, they're, they're skedaddling because now the Japanese have really taken over. So the Japanese, they were beginning to get wise to the ways of these flying tigers. Now they were much more careful about how they flew their bombing missions. Almost mm. half of the assets Japan had put in the air had been lost to RAF and AVG fighters. So these daring daytime raids by Japan had been too costly. So for the time being, they decided to bomb at night only. It was harder to shoot them down. You have to remember, up to this time, early 1942, things hadn't gone too bad for Japan. Since the bombing of Pearl Harbor, no one had been able to effectively stand up to them. I mean, yeah, sure, Japan, they suffered some losses here and there, but pretty much they had come in and taken everything they wanted. But Burma was proving to be different. And even though they had a large fleet of aircraft to fight with, the Japanese military planners, they had meticulously planned things down to the individual aircraft. And less than two Mm. months into the Burma campaign, the losses suffered from the AVG and British RAF attacks were, they were most unexpected. And the ripple effect through the planning of this do-or-die offensive by the Japanese, that was quite considerable. You know how the Japanese are. They're very very good at planning and uh, uh, very meticulous. And Churchill had said of this, quote, the victories of the Americans over the rice paddies of Burma are comparable in character, if not in scope, with those won by the RAF over the hop fields of Kent in the Battle of Britain, end quote. Wow. Yeah. So the Japanese retaliated with massive airstrikes on air bases at Magwe and Kaida in Burma. They had 226 bombing sorties later, the mission was accomplished in Chenault got kicked out of Burma and had to find a new air base. So this was located in Loiwe, deep in the mountains of North Burma. They went there because Camco had established a base there to resupply and and, uh, repair. So Mm -hmm. clear Chenault's two marquee strategies that are so often directly attributed to him were, one, the dive bombing techniques of the P-40s, and two, the early warning systems that utilized the limited technologies of the day. Mm -hmm. This early warning system would give extra minutes and seconds to the AVG pilots to 
stop whatever they were doing 24-7 and then jump into their P-40s and get airborne. And any planes left on the ground by the time the bombers arrived were doomed. So Chenault, being a trained fighter pilot himself, he knew the luxury of what a three-minute warning could give before the attack commenced. So Chenault had all this in place during the next phase of the war for the AVG, based in Loy Wing, in, in Burma still. Right. But something else was had also been going on since January of 1942. Sadly, this is where the military politics begins to assert itself into our story, and everything turns a little darker for Chenault and the Flying Tigers. This was when Vinegar Joe Stillwell enters the Flying Tiger story. He had been put in charge of the CBI theater at this time, the China-Burma-Indian theater, and Chenault and Stilwell were rivals. Uh, Stilwell never self-censored anything he'd said or anything he did, and he didn't think much of Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, Uncle Joe, as he was called, did not like Chiang and didn't respect him as a military leader. And Chiang uh, hated Stilwell and literally had to go to FDR and say, either he or I go. That's how bad it got. That, that's how uh, bad it got it in, in the end. Well, Chenault was a Chiang man, so this was a major point of contention between these two Americans. So in March, April, and May of 1942, the Battle of Wills between Stilwell and Chenault will be fought, while the Japanese are also being fought at the same time. So, firstly, all these amazing achievements of the Flying Tigers had been seized upon by the U.S. authorities, you know, who are in charge of PR, and they're, and they're touting the Flying Tigers to the skies. And every success story was put in front of the American people to bolster them after the horrors of Pearl Harbor. So Chenault and his team's stock are quite high at the moment. Chenault and his Flying Tiger pilots were seen in the public as quite the heroes and hot shots. And remember, Chenault was a man who backed the nationalist government. So as you say, Ray, Stillwell, he was very, very denigrating to the Air Force. Remember, the Air Force is still a relatively new uh, part of the military. Stillwell, right. his philosophy called for boots on the ground as the only way to win battles and wars. And as far as Stillwell was concerned, the only role the Air Force played was for reconnaissance and general and in a general support role for 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 helping soldiers fighting on the ground. So you can imagine mm. what uh, Chanel thought about that uh, line of thinking. <laughs> now, besides yeah. Stillwell, Chanel had other rivals in the military, and this one was more like an enemy, someone he knew from his days back in flight training school. He was Clayton Bissell. He was part of Stillwell's gang. And from here on out, until the AVG was officially closed down on July 4th, 1942, Bissell was a stone in Chenault's boot. Time and again, Stillwell will keep Chenault under his thumb by always stacking the deck so that his man, Clayton Bissell, outranks Chenault. And in the military, rank means everything. Right. And it's very hard for someone like me because, you know, a war is going on and people are dying and every, and these guys are worried about their, I guess, their uh, their friends and their own, their own reputations, whatever. It's kind of hard to stomach this, but I guess that's that's the way it's always been. And that's the way it will always be. So Stillwell pushes Chanel to side whenever he can. And he thinks that it's going to be him with his army that is going to push the Japanese out of Burma. But as we'll see later, when all is said and done, it's going to be Vinegar, Vinegar Joe's army that gets its hat handed to them by the Japanese. And on April 23rd, 1942, they're going to have to make their epic retreat that 
we'll cover later. So, like MacArthur in the Philippines, Stilwell has a chance to make a quick getaway via the air, but unlike MacArthur, he famously chose to stay with his troops and personally lead, personally lead a hasty retreat across Burma into India, just missing being annihilated by the Japanese. Meanwhile, Stilwell demanded that Chenault order his pilots to carry out suicidal recon missions and air support as they're fleeing. But then to complicate matters, Chiang Kai-shek gets involved and he begins issuing contradictory orders. So there's Chenault in the middle between these two. But in the end, being the leader that he was, he listened to his men who were on the verge of mutinying uh, unless these suicidal missions by ordered by Stilwell were ceased. So that's what he did. So Chenault told Stilwell the missions had to go and gave his reasons. And you can imagine what this did for their already tense relationship. So by, by this time, the whole raison d'etre for the AVG, it was already mm-hmm. finished. Their deeds and all the hoopla that surrounded the Flying Tigers were known throughout the U.S. military and in the American public. But the time had come to shut this outfit down and integrate everyone into the U.S. Armed Services or back into the Armed Services, since most mm-hmm. everyone had been snatched from you know, one branch of the military right. or another. So while all this was going on, early 1942... Chenault and the AVG, were, they were still on China's payroll, still accruing their wages and bonuses from Camco. So the talk began to hot up about putting an end to this state of affairs and getting all these hot shots, all these hot shot pilots, mm-hmm. putting them into the U.S. Army. Right, because you made the point. I mean, once Pearl Harbor comes, we're officially at war. We don't need to go through a campaign, right. so let's let's get him back in there. So, as for Chenault, uh, against the best wishes of General George Marshall and General Hap Arnold, um, he's the chief of the Army Air Forces. The Army offered Chenault the rank of Colonel to come back into the fold. Chenault let it be known, and you've got to you've got to remember that this guy was brash. He had an ego, but he could back it up. So he lets it be known that nothing less than a star is going to satisfy him. So they respond and they raise him to a brigadier general. But there has to be some kind of compromise because we're dealing with the military and so we're dealing with politics. So Stillwell's man, Clayton Bissell, who you mentioned, also gets promoted as well. So he is still slightly outranking Chenault. Uh, The thinking on high was that no one needed uh, the AVG anymore, like you mentioned before. And by taking all those pilots and some of their crew, it would be an efficient but dirty way for the Army Air Force to absorb a whole new group of veterans to the air, air-to-air combat. So, so for this new Army Air Force, like you were alluding to earlier, they've got all these experienced pilots. They're going to bring them back home and kind of get a jump start on, um, on this branch, this brand new branch that they pretty much need in the fight as soon as they possibly can. But here's where it gets really ugly for the pilots. Consider everything that they've gone through up until now, including all the diseases, the lousy food, the miserable jungle conditions, insect infestations, the snakes. That's that's the big one for me, the snakes. <laughs> and always being the last priority for parts and equipment. They figured at the very least, if they were going to go home and go back into the military, they would be able to go back in to the branches that they formerly served in and maybe, you know, get some kind of promotion. Because after all, like you say, they've got all this experience now. But instead, what they do is they get orders to join the Army Air Force along with Chenault. Now, some of these volunteers had come from the Marines and the Navy, uh, but they're all going to be pushed into the Army now. And if they didn't like it, 
as they're going to find out later, they can take their chances with the draft board back home. And again, that's a little risky and, and to my mind, completely disrespectful. And this is how it was given to them by Bissell himself. Again, the, the, the politics involved is they're still going after Chenault in any way they can. They were told in as undiplomatic way as possible to take it or leave it. Now, as you can imagine, Chenault fought for his men to get what they wanted, but he was going up against General George Marshall and General Arnold, so he had a hard time of it. But then Chenault, being the feisty person that he is, uses the last final ace that he has up his sleeve. Previously, FDR had instructed Chenault that if he ever needed him, he was granted the authority to use a private channel. So, Chenault wrote to the 32nd president and told him that the AVG would remain a much more effective fighting force if left to continue as they were with him in charge. And FDR, being the politician that he was, wisely worked out a compromise. As planned, the AVG would merge with the Army Air Force as scheduled on July 4, 1942, and Chenault would remain in command of these air forces in China as a one-star general. Chenault commanded the fighters, and his political rival, Clayton Bissell, took the bombers. This wasn't what Marshall wanted, but he went along with it. When FDR dies, however, in April of 1945, Chenault will quickly be shown the door, because I guess generals never forget. <laughs> yeah, that was all in the future. But despite this compromise that was worked out, eh, the damage had been done to the general morale of the AVG pilots and crew. But they were all loyal to Chenault. They knew he bled for them. So when Chenault gave everyone the news about the way it was going to be, well, that spelled the beginning of the end of the Flying Tigers. Japan, in a matter of four to five months, had smashed and grabbed everything in Southeast Asia that once belonged to the Western colonial powers. So the political order of East Asia since the start of the 20th century was now turned on its head. And at the most painful moment, when Japan was at its most powerful and was causing the most death and destruction, and there was little or no good news to report, the deeds of the AVG from their first date of combat on December 20th, 1941, till the outfit was formally closed down, they helped to keep the people's heads up. And at a time when a little good news went a long way, the Flying Tigers in China were like a beacon of hope. They were in the right place at the right time. Right. And there was one other ray of sunshine, if I may. On April 18, 1942, Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle's famous surprise air raid on Tokyo. It wasn't very successful as far as raids go, but it was a great PR stunt for the Americans. And under instructions from Clayton Bissell, no one told Chenault what was going on until after it was already done. And he could have told them that it was a mistake and it wouldn't accomplish much. But again, I think uh, the Americans back in Washington were focused on PR. Um, but the other reason is that Chenault knew what would be coming next from this little stunt. Massive Japanese retaliation. If things weren't bad enough already on the Chinese coast, now the Japanese launched an aggressive campaign inland to destroy any of these air bases that could be used to launch future bombing raids against the Japanese islands. And later on, from these new captured air bases, the Japanese would, were able to extend their reach westward into China. As for Burma, the Japanese marched north through Burma towards the Chinese border, slowed down, but it was never stopped. 
And this leads us to one of the last major battles that the AVG participated in. This involved the Battle of the Salween River. Salween right? River. Salween Sol- River. Okay. You got it. I got one right. Yes, one out of five is not bad. Uh, let's see here. As I mentioned, no one could stop the Japanese once they started marching north through Burma to the China border. Yes, the RAF and AVG were able to get in some body blows, but really all they did was slow down Japan's inevitable taking of Burma. All the Allies, sooner or later, had to retreat to safety. The AVG base at La Wing was taken, and the group had to scatter. After the loss of this airbase, the only thing in between China and the Japanese army was the 1,750-mile-long Salween River. In Chinese, this river is called the Nujiang. Nujiang. Very good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay, I'll call that a half. I'll call that a half. Okay. It separated northern Burma from Yunnan. And on May 6, 1942, the last of the Allies crossed the bridge to the China side. And once there, the, Chi- the, the British, along with the Chinese, blew up the bridge. Now, this is no big deal for the experienced Japanese. All they have to do is start building a pontoon bridge. But for right now, their 20,000 soldiers are just going to sit there and watch the engineers work. So all of the Japanese troops on the Burma side of the river are just kind of sitting there, exposed with their backs literally up against the steep cliffs. It was then that four AVG pilots flew over them on May 7, 1942. And seeing what was up, they promptly destroyed whatever had been built so far of this pontoon bridge, and then they strafed along the cliffs where the Japanese soldiers were exposed. For the next several days, Chenault threw everything he could get his hands on at those luckless Japanese soldiers. Honestly, even though we are talking about human lives, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. This Battle of Salween River Gorge, in the end, it pushed the Japanese back from the Yunnan border. And this would be the one and only effort by Japan to invade China from its southern border. And it had failed. And this defeat of Japan at the Salween River was a massive propaganda victory for China. Everyone knew the significance of this victory over the enemy. So although the Flying Tigers didn't do this alone... They were sort of singled out in the consciousness of the local Chinese for what had been achieved. On the same day, by the way, American and Japanese fought the Battle of Coral Sea, a naval battle that didn't end in victory, but stunned Japan enough so that a month later, when the Battle of Midway took place, they weren't fighting in optimal conditions anymore. At Midway, as we'll find out uh, when you get to that point, (laughs) was a major turning point in the war in the Pacific. So after this battle of the Salween River, to make matters worse for Japan, a squad of six AVG pilots also flew a deadly surprise raid on the Japanese-occupied Gyalam Air Base in Hanoi, and the devastation was total. There had also been an air raid by the Japanese on the city of Guilin that had been repulsed by the AVG, and then a last one on the 4th of July— where the AVG attacked a Japanese airbase in Hengyang in Hunan province. And these victories in Guilin and Hengyang were pretty much the final victories credited to the Flying Tigers. And on June 20th, people of Guilin held a celebration in honor of the AVG, and the following proclamation was made by the local authorities. And they said, quote, Guardians of the air, you heroes of the American flying tigers and the Chinese divine hawks, after our long expectation and to our great cheerfulness, 
You have annihilated 11 Japanese vultures in the air above Kuelin on June 13th. This is the most brilliant merit of air combat that has ever been achieved in Kuelin. You have once more created your great glory of extinguishing your enemy in the air. We, the 300,000 citizens of Guilin, are especially delighted. We are sure that all the people of China and all the allies will take this to be an everlasting token of remembrance. Today, we, the 300,000 citizens of Guilin, are presenting you our heartiest congratulations and the highest respect to you. Let us yell, long live the American flying tigers, long live the Chinese divine hawks, long live the cooperation between the USA and China. Signed, the Guilin Airmen Comforting Evening Party, end quote. The Chinese divine hawks, that was China's version of the flying tigers. Although the focus of this podcast is on the AVG and the role of the Americans, all along, the battles were being fought in cooperation with Chinese forces. Hello, everyone. Ray here. Before science, before philosophy, before literature, there was mythology. If you're a fan of the History of World War II podcast, you'll probably enjoy stories about heroes, gods, monsters, and events that shape the Earth. The new mythology podcast from Parcast takes a deep dive into the history, origins, and meaning of each myth. Within each story is a lesson about the human condition that is brought to life by an ensemble cast of voice actors. Every episode dramatizes an exciting story pulled from the beliefs of ancient cultures, giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe and how those stories resonate in our lives today. Mythology covers Greek, Norse, and Egyptian myths, as well as lesser-known stories from Sumerians, Africans, the Japanese, and many more. Episodes on the Greek goddess Athena are available right now. Look for upcoming episodes on Loki, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and Osiris and Isis. New episodes come out every Tuesday. So take a moment and search and subscribe to Mythology wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's M-Y-T-H-O-L-O-G-Y. Or visit parcast.com slash mythology to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash mythology to listen now. And so comes July 4th, 1942, but not everyone in the AVG stayed on after the transition. In fact, most did not. Chenault pleaded, but the rivalry between the branches was too much. The Marine and Navy pilots just couldn't see themselves in the Army. And as an Air Force brat myself, I can tell you that uh, tension (laughs) is quite real. Many who decided to move on delay their departure a couple of weeks in order to give Chenault extra time to train his latest recruits for the new 23rd Fighter Group. But after paying their due to Chenault, whom they still respected, these AVG pilots and crew made their way back to the United States. Once back in the States, they were able to re-enlist in the service where they felt they belonged, uh, Navy, Marines, or whatever. And of course, one of the more famous ones is Pappy Boyington, who the show Black Sheep... Baba Black Sheep was based on, which I loved as a kid, he goes back into the Marines. Uh, yet some of them decided that they had enough of war and smartly, in, in my opinion, got in on the ground floor of the budding aviation industry. 
As for Chenault, he moved up to Chong, is it Chongqing? Chongqing, Chongqing. Chongqing, thank you. He moved up to Chongqing where he was based, serving much to General Marshal and Arnold Chagrin, uh, the commander of the CF excuse me, of the CATF, the China Air Task Force. He did this until March of 1943, and finally, after getting his second star and becoming a major general, he was put in charge of the 14th Air Force. And once FDR passed away, April 1945, Chenault's enemies in high places forced him to retire. And this was on July 8th, 1945, a month before the atomic bombings put in Exclamation point on the end of the war. Chenault claimed that 299 Japanese aircraft had been destroyed by his AVG fighters. And of the AVG, 12 of their P-40s were shot out of the sky by their Japanese opponents and 61 destroyed on the ground. A third of those planes had been abandoned by the AVG when they hastily bolted from their base in Loy Wing in Burma. Chenault further claimed another 153 more planes on top of the 299 were shot down, but couldn't be proven. 23 AVG pilots were killed. Ten were shot down, three were killed on the ground, and the rest died in flying accidents. The Japanese and their propaganda to the home audience, they claimed they had shot down 554 (laughs) of these AVG planes. Chenault only wished he had that many to lose. At most, throughout the period of the AVG's existence, he was never able to get more than maybe a dozen or so planes in the air at any given time. But it was the cooperation between China and the USA that proved the underlying foundation that made the overall mission of the AVG a success. I mean, there was more to it than shooting down Japanese planes. The Chinese had provided all the air support in the construction of airfields, runways, and buildings. And they manned the early warning systems that were devised and by, by Chenault. And whenever a flying tiger pilot was forced to bail and parachute to safety, time and again, the local Chinese on the ground found them and got them back to safety. You see, the flying tigers, they all carry these so-called blood shits. Blood shits... These were notices that uh, they carried with them. It was uh, like on a letter-sized, uh, A4-sized uh, piece of printed silk. And all the pilots you know, would sew these things onto the back of their flight jackets. And if worse came to worse and they got shot down or had to parachute to safety, any literate Chinese who found them could read the words of this blood shit that was printed on that silk. And it said, Yang Ren Lai Hua Zhu Zhan. And it was signed by the Hong Kong Weiyuanhui, or the Aviation Committee. And that blood chit specifically said, This foreigner has come to China to help in the war. Soldiers and civilians, one and all, should rescue and protect them. And it worked. When pilots crashed, local Chinese on the ground came to their aid, got them back to the base. And even if you couldn't read the characters... The nationalist Chinese flag was prominently displayed on the bloodshed, and people knew what that was. So no reward was promised, but the civilians knew by helping bring a pilot to safety, eh, there'd be something in it for them. So, And these bloodshits were also used during the Korean War as well. And so July 4th, 1942, it's all over. The five AVG pilots who stayed behind, well, they went on to cause even further grief for the Japan as part of the 23rd Fighter Group. 
and as a tribute to these flying tigers, the A-10 Warthogs of today's 23rd Fighter Group are painted with the shark mouths design that graced the P-40s of the AVG. When the war was over, Schnault worked closely with Chiang Kai-shek to establish the Civil Air Transport, or CAT. This was a company that ran all kinds of contract missions for the government, which has been accused of being a part of the infamous Air America, the outfit made famous by Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. in the 1990 movie. But this was all after Chenault's death. So, uh, yeah, Air America, that uh, that was uh, Air America was covertly owned by our very own CIA. They, they uh, were in operation, I think, up till uh, the end of the Vietnam War. Or a little after, I think they got shut down. As for Chenault, till his dying day, he remained loyal to Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT regime, and he continued to provide advice throughout the Civil War and after Chiang moved to Taiwan. And as he lay dying of cancer, 1958, Song Mei Ling, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, visited him on his deathbed. Claire Chenault had written about the AVG this way, quote, The group that the experts had predicted would not last three weeks in combat had fought for seven months over Burma, China, Thailand, and French Indochina, destroying 299 planes and another 153 probably destroyed. All of this with a loss of 12 P-40s in combat and 61 on the ground, including the 22 burned at Loy Wing. Four pilots were killed in air combat, six were killed by anti-aircraft fire, three by enemy bombs on the ground, and three were taken prisoner. Ten more died as a result of flying accidents. Although the Japanese promised on their radio broadcast to shoot AVG prisoners as bandits, they treated our three prisoners as well as regular British and American POWs. I took it as an indication of the enemy's genuine respect for our organization. Mm. End quote. Now on July 4th, 1991, 49 years after they were disbanded, the U.S. government gave the AVG members veteran status. Wow. You know, right? Mm-hmm. U.S. and China are not in a very good place right now. Yeah. Ever since we normalized relations back in 79, the U.S. and China have been trying to get this relationship right. Since 1949, there's been plenty of history and bad blood between the U.S. and China. The Korean War, 1954 Geneva Conference, where we openly disrespected Zhou Enlai. Then there was the the Vietnam War. Then in 1989, we had that shakeout after June 4th. We also had the May 1999 bombing at the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, Mm -hmm. something that didn't make a big splash here in the States, but caused massive, massive anti-American feelings in China. And two years after that came the April 2001 Hainan incident in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. And now the U.S. and China are locked in a new struggle with consequences that will affect us all, no matter how things turn out. But we'll always have the Flying Tigers, the U.S. and China. All this negative that surrounds this so-called most important relationship in the world, let's not ever forget the shared history the U.S. and China have and how these two countries came together during that dark hour at the outset of World War II. Hear, hear. Well said. 
Well, thanks, Leslo, for joining me for this episode. Uh, when it came to the AVG, I just knew I had to have you on the show, and you helped me make it a lot more sense out of it. Hey, yeah, and listen, I'm, I'm sorry about my agents and all the negotiations and the, the appearance <laughs> fee and you know whatnot. Right. Well, it worked. It worked out in the end. Uh, we were able to come up with the fee. Of course, me and my family won't be able to eat meat for a couple of months. But hey, don't <laughs> let that worry you at all. Okay. Uh, no, I, I do appreciate it, and we certainly hope to have you back on one day. Hey, hey look, Ray, I got a family to feed too. <laughs> yeah, but your kids are already out of college. <laughs> You'll find out, Ray. The costs don't end after the kids graduate. <laughs> it's, it's an ongoing thing. Okay. But uh, thanks all the same. That was a, it was a very generous honorarium your uh, people coughed up. Yeah, with a gun to my head. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. It was money well spent. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So so thank you all for listening. And thank you, Laszlo. Uh, Laszlo and I have been comrades in arms since we both began our podcasting journeys back in the summer of uh, 2010. This is the third time we've been together. And once again, please check out Laszlo's show, The China History Podcast. You can find it at teacup.media or in all the same places where you find my shows. So please go there and give Laszlo a nice five-star rating, some nice comments, so he can maintain his edge over his competitors, because that's what it's all about. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Ray, thanks again for inviting me on your esteemed show. Thank you very much. And as always, for everyone else, take care. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So since this show ran a little long, sorry about that, um, I'm going to wait till the next time to thank everybody for the people who have become members, bought mugs, that kind of thing. But don't worry, I will, I will get you next time. Also, please don't forget, if you can, uh, to listen to this podcast on Himalaya, the Himalaya podcast app, because they pay me, you help out, but you don't have to do anything except for download their app. So if you could do that, I'd really appreciate it. But the last thing I want to, do, to, to say to you before I let you go um, is that some of you may know um, that I co-host a bunch of other history podcasts with my Aussie friend Cameron Riley. And he was actually a pioneer of history podcasting back in 2006 with his Napoleon Bonaparte series, which was actually the very first podcast I listened to, and that inspired me to, to do this show. So he and I have been doing shows together for the last five years. Let's see, we started with the history of Julius Caesar, the life of Julius Caesar, then we went on to Augustus, and now we're up to Tiberius. We also did a long series on Alexander the Great, and that was a lot of fun. I still miss Alexander because we learned a lot about uh, life back then and what happened after Alexander died. Um, And right now we're in the middle of the Cold War. We're doing another show on the Cold War, and we just started one, well, kind of just started on the Renaissance. Uh, Again, that's a lot of fun because we're learning a lot as we go. We've also just wrapped up a uh, series on the War on Drugs. But you can find all of these shows on thepodcastnetwork.com. Some of the shows are free, some of them are premium, but to celebrate our five-year anniversary, we're giving a 50% discount to the first 100 listeners of this show who sign up for any of our premium episodes. You just need to use the coupon RAY, or A-Y, during the sign-up process, but it is limited to the first 100 people, so be quick.
And as a warning, the shows Cam and I do together, they're serious um, history shows, but we do swear a lot. We make a lot of jokes. We try to have laughs. And sometimes um, religion and politics get interjected in there. So if you're sensitive about that kind of thing or language, you know, I'm just this is just me being honest with you. It might not be for you. But if you have a tough skin, you have a robust sense of humor, please consider checking it out. Again, it's thepodcastnetwork.com. And use the coupon Ray for a 50% discount. Thank you very much. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big... Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.